My name is Deborah. I am a compulsive overeater, vomiter, and drug addict. And I will uh, very shortly make clear why I say all of those things. Um, I almost always start speaking by saying that I came into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous on May 15, 1981, which means I have been here 36 and a half years. And um, the only two things that I did right were I kept breathing and I kept coming back. Everything else that was suggested in this program was really difficult for me to do. And so just like it says in How It Works, where it says half measures availed me nothing, half measures availed me nothing. And I didn't just come on that day and then say, oh, you're crazy and leave. I came two, three, five, seven times a week, two trips through eating disorder unit, shipped off to a women's long-term care facility, and it still took me nine years of being here to get abstinent. And that means that this year I celebrated 27 years of continuous abstinence. Um, I am a bulimic, um, and so my bottom line abstinence is I eat it, I own it. No renting food, no giving food back, no, yeah, I put it in my body, I have to keep it there. I have to be accountable for my actions. And as an immature, compulsive overeater who was never accountable for any of her actions, put food in, took food out, stole food, anything, get fired from jobs, whatever those things are, I was really immature. And the beginning of my um, accepting the responsibility or the consequences of my behavior was the beginning for me of um, my journey in, in recovery. Um, uh, I, I do have photographs. I can't see them on the, uh, there on the recording, but I do have photographs. I am a compulsive overeater. Um, I stand just a little over five feet tall. My top weight was 175 pounds, and my lowest weight, cocaine-induced, was about 102 pounds. And um, I uh, got sober and recovered from the, the cocaine addiction and have been sober for 34 years in um, AA and uh, CA, Cocaine Anonymous. So here's pictures. There's dates on the back, like 72, 73, 78. I've been, I'm, I'm old, you know. <laughs> I'm old, okay. So um, um, I grew up in Chicago, because uh, I, I don't quite know where to start this story. Um, and um, uh, I guess the easiest way to, to get to this, I always liked to eat. I was a middle child. Um, I have an older brother. I have a younger sister. The middle child is like you're either two, you know, he gets it because he's the oldest. She gets it because she's the youngest. You got nothing. You're invisible in the middle. And, you know, food was just comfortable. I don't know. I, I, I have incidents where I remember getting up in the middle of the night and eating grapes from the refrigerator or whatever. But I can actually, I believe, place that moment when my eating too much turned to compulsive overeating. It was like there's an actual moment. And only in um, retrospect am I able to see that. My father who was my family ally, we shared a birthday, whatever it was. Um, my father uh, died um, two days before my 16th birthday. And which meant, you know, there was no Sweet 16 party. There was, no, the, you know, those packages, those life rituals. I didn't have any of those things. But I 
my father was um, a, a board member at the synagogue and this and that, and there was a huge shiva. Hundreds of people came. He was very young. He was 47 years old. And um, there, the shiva went on for days. And what did people do? They bring food. This was like my 16th birthday party, and it was endless. There was this, like, this is this moment that I can actually pick that my eating changed from just that I enjoyed eating to compulsive overeating. It, 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 I, I see that that was a tipping point for me. And, you know, my um, eating disorder took me places that, that none of my other addictions did. Um, uh, things like, and I just want to give small examples, and I'll be, you know, like, um, when I was in the college dorm, because I lived in a dorm, and uh, there were vending machines in the dorms uh, at that point in time, and um, the vending machines on Sunday night, they would be empty because they, you know, they've been emptied out. They get filled on Monday and they were all completely empty on Sunday. So I remember being in the lounge at my college and, you know, anybody remember those hostess fold-over fruit pies that they would stick in vending machines they used to cost a quarter? Um, and I found in an ashtray the crust of one and I took that and I brushed off the ashes and I ate that, okay? Because I'm a really low-bottom compulsive overeater. And in Chicago on New Year's Eve, there used to be the 24-hour grocery stores that would close, close at midnight on holidays and open again at 6 a.m. And I'm sitting across from the A&P in the Dunkin' Donuts at 5.30 in the morning. Oh, it's 44 below zero out. It's New Year's Eve in Chicago. My car was stupid enough to start. Kidding? It was 44 below zero. And I'm in the Dunkin' Donuts eating donuts waiting for the A&P to open. Those are the places that my eating disorder took me. So if you're sitting in this chair, your eating took you places that you didn't want to be either. And, you know, it's not for me to share story for story. You want to be here and not be eating the way you were eating. So welcome. Um, at some point in my late 20s, I discovered um, uh, cocaine took your appetite away. And you could, like, roller skate all day long. That was the era of, like, everybody was on roller skates. You know, the ones that had, like, eight wheels and everything, not blades. And we would all roller skate in our, you know, like, high socks and short shorts. And, you know. and we were out there roller skating and um, weighing nothing and doing cocaine all day. And, um, and I got really, really thin and, then, and broke my leg on those roller skates, as you could see in those pictures. Um, and was on coke when I broke my leg on the roller skates. So, so what happened? Um, I knew something was wrong. Anybody lie their way through therapy? Besides me? <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars. Thank you. There's a hand up in the back. Um, tens of thousands of dollars talked about everything else but never talked about my food. Never talked about my food because I like faked it. I looked sort of normal body weight. You know, I, I did join Weight Watchers in the 70s and I lost the majority of my weight. I was keeping it off with cocaine and, and throwing up. 
Okay, that, that was the bottom line. Uh, so I felt like I was passing. So I never talked about that in therapy. And I had a therapist who was dumb enough to give me her home phone number. And when I called her at 2 o'clock in the morning at one point in time, she said to me, I'm so glad you're calling me, but you're going to need to find another way. And she did suggest Overeaters Anonymous, and I called them. It was a Thursday night. I left some pathetic message on a phone machine, and some perky boys called me at like 9 o'clock on Friday morning. I had a job where I had that Friday off, and I was hung over with food. I was like, Ugh. And she told me that there was a meeting at 545 that evening. You know, and it was at Northwestern Hospital. That meeting is still there when I go to Chicago. I go to that meeting. Um, it was at 5.45 in, ironically enough, the doctor's dining room at Northwestern Hospital. <laughs> and uh, I went to that meeting, and uh, a woman stood up that was sitting next to me, and she said she was a compulsive overeater and a vomiter. And, and that is why I identified that way. I'd never heard anything like that before. To me, first of all, I didn't know the, the word bulimic. And, you know, so here's this word, and it sounded very medical. What I did wasn't medical, it was violent. It was abusive. It was ripping food out of my body. It, it was not pretty. So I heard this woman say that, and I knew that I belonged here, and I have never left. I have never left. That, that's how I got here. Um, uh, here's what my big book looks like. Your big book doesn't look like this. It means generally you're not opening it up enough. That's what I was told. I'm not judging you. It's not a judgment. It's what I was told by people who've gone before me. I, I bring it in because I love to read something that sort of helps me center why I'm here. And I don't know about any of you, but I was always looking for a solution to this. Like in every magazine at the checkout counter as I was going out with my copious amounts of food and if I had checked out from one checker and came, barfed it all up and came back I'm, you'd better believe I'm with a different checker because like there's so, so much shame the disease is full of shame so there's a chapter in this book called There is a Solution there it is, there's a title you're telling me there's a solution it's the second chapter of the book and on page 24 and it's in italics and I like to tell the people that I work with I think it's in italics because they really want me to read this. And it says here, the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, believe it, an hour ago, excuse me, we are without defense against the first drink. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. I am a helpless, hopeless, gutter, bottom, compulsive overeater. There is no hope for me. Yet this thing, I'm going to cry because I always do. This book tells me there's a solution. I don't have to live this way anymore. And it's like, well, what do I have to do? And what you have all taught me by going before me, remember, it took me nine years of being here to figure out that my way didn't do it. You tell me that it's a spiritual solution. Like, what does that mean? And I didn't know what, I was like, what does that mean? And I think 
that what happened for me is I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how God gods. So if I figured it out, mm-hmm. then I could figure the solution. You know, did you end run? Anybody ever do end runs? You know, like, I could do it this way instead. You know, and if I figured out how God got it, I guys like I got it. Like okay, and I was at and it was an AA meeting. And uh, a woman stood up, her name is Shannon, I've never seen her again, and she said, and you know, it's like, it's like when the student is ready, the teacher appears, I'm sure people had said these kind of things before, I just wasn't ready to hear it, and she said when she stopped trying to figure out what God is, and just accepted that God is, it all got easy. I didn't it's like it all it all fell away it just it was like all the fight fell away it just it, it just fell away and I stopped fighting everything and everyone and started to become willing to do what you told me to do and I was working well I wasn't working with a newcomer friend I brought a friend uh, to, to meetings um, a number of months ago and she was all enthusiastic and she started doing everything and she got a sponsor and and you know I never I can't tell if the right or wrong sponsor for her or this or that because you know she subsequently left like many of us do and yet she was doing all the things you know all, all the things and she was telling me about this and I realized by listening to her that she was that she felt that there was a list of, like a checklist, and if I do all these things, I'll get it right. If I call a sponsor, and I commit my food, and I go to a meeting, and I write on the step, and I read the book, it's like, then I'm going to get it. And she didn't get it. And I was thinking this morning, um, they still talk to her, that, oh my gosh, this page, who's got a big book? There's this page. I miss the pages. I miss the page. Ah. Where's page 83? Page 82. All right. Oh, my gosh. I was reading it this morning. Thank you. I've got it. Thank you. It's 84. Okay. Talks about... We and we have ceased fighting anything or every anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor or food. If we are tempted, we recoil as if from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally. And we find that this has happened automatically. We will see that, that our new attitude towards liquor has been given to us. It just comes without any effort on our part. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it. Neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor we are afraid. Here, here it is. Here it is. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in a fit spiritual condition. It is easy to let up on the the spiritual program of action and we rest on our laurels. I say if I rest on my laurels, they get bigger. 
Uh, we are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And, you know, that's different for every single person in this room. And I don't think that that's what that woman heard. And hopefully she'll give us another try. If not, she'll keep finding her own path, whatever her path is. Because each of us were brought here with a path to find. And I am so humbly grateful that I became willing to be so broken that I was out of ideas. There were no more ideas left. And I was always a person full of ideas. And I don't know about any of you, but most of us are really good problem solvers. I have solved everybody else's problems. And I can tell you what to do, and I know that's the solution to your problem. And it generally probably is. But I can't do it to myself. It's, I'm completely unable to do it to myself. And so I had, that was back to begin the willingness to give up the idea of thinking I know what God is. I became willing to not know or to not believe the voices in my head and to ask for help. To ask for help. My mother is 96 years old. I still outweigh her. My father died when she, he was 47. She was 45. Her life has been about pulling herself up by the bootstraps. She's always been that kind of person. She doesn't ask for help. She does it herself. She still drives. She reads three newspapers a day. She is like, are you kidding me? You know, genetically grateful. Yes, I will say that. But the other thing is that she... There was so much shame for me about asking for help because I wasn't taught that way. My upbringing was, you're smart, you figure it out. I could not figure this out. I, I, the, the places this took me was ATM getting hundreds of dollars a night at 3 o'clock in the morning to buy cocaine. Those are the places this, this took me. Sitting at that Dunkin' Donuts, thank you very much. Five minutes. Sitting at that Dunkin' Donuts in 44 below temperature, you know, it's like, are you kidding me? Barfing in garages and, and just, my disease didn't take me pretty places. I could not pull myself up by my bootstrap. You all had to pull me up. I had to be willing to become a link in the chain of recovery and get pulled in like that tells me in the 12 and 12 that we are in this lifeboat with people that we wouldn't normally associate with. And yet here we all are recovering from a seemingly hopeless condition of mind, body, and spirit. I, I am so humbly grateful for this program. I don't know about anybody else here, but I wasn't really good at dating, okay? Um, it, it didn't happen for me. And, you know, in my 20s and 30s, um, when my disease was active, I would go out on these dates, and I would go, oh, time to go home, got to go to work tomorrow. And I'd watch the person leave out my apartment window, and then I'd be in the car going to get food to binge and purge, okay? That's what I was doing. I didn't know how to have a relationship with another human being. At about 17 years um, uh, abstinence, I don't know how long that was in the sober number, my sponsor, and I have a sponsor who 
covers all. I have one sponsor, I'm grateful to say. She said to me, you're clean, you're sober, you're abstinent, your relationships with other human beings stink. You need to go to Al-Anon. Because Al-Anon is about recovery without any substances involved. All the substances are taken away, and what we're left with is relationships with other human beings. Because I got fired from jobs a lot. Anybody get fired from jobs a lot? Um, thank you. <laughs> Not alone. So, um, so I started going to Al-Anon. And, and I tell you this for, for the, the gratitude part is where I'm really getting here. I began, and I sat in the back with my arms crossed. I was out the door. I didn't want to be like any of those people. I were wimpy doormats. I didn't want... I didn't know how to be nice to other human beings. And I began to listen to what they told... They, they said they did. They weren't telling me what to do. They were just talking about their stuff. And I began to apply those principles in my life. And about six months in, which happened to be... Actually, it'll be December 24th. Um, I went to a party uh, that was um, my Al-Anon sponsor... Um, or a new Al-Anon friend she wasn't a sponsor and um, her husband threw this big party and I met somebody um, that night and uh, we are now married and we uh, will be celebrating 17 years um, on this Christmas Eve of knowing each other and in the spring we'll be married 10 years and that happened because of bringing these principles into my relationship and, and he has um, three daughters and there now are three little individuals on this planet who call me Nana. And I have no idea where that love in my life came. That there are little people who are like, Nana, 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 will you play Legos with me? Nana, will you sleep with me tonight? Nobody invited me into their lives. Most of them were like, don't let the door hit you on the way out. I was not a welcome person. And I have become a welcome person in people's lives today due to the willingness to surrender my ideas and do what you told me so that I have a chance of living a quality life today. I thank you for that opportunity. This is the time for questions only. There's no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking a question, you do not need to identify yourself. Um, please remember if you ask a question, your voice, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the podcast. Now, I just need to tell you that um, this is a really intimidating part for me um, to do this. And one of the reasons why is that I have thought, found throughout my life that my mouth is what's gotten me in trouble. Okay, either what I've put into my mouth or what's come out of my mouth, and whether that's words or otherwise. So one of the things that I have been really, really working on, because it's still kind of an active issue in my life, I've been dealing with this in the sixth and the seventh step, is that character defect of talking too much and interrupting. It's like, you want me to talk more? So I'm really working on trying to talk less. So this is a little uncomfortable, but, you know, whatever. Okay, please. And with that introduction to being intimidated by that, could you talk about steps six and seven, character defects and getting over you bet. My favorite two steps. Actually, I, I, I will 
Yeah. Um, I got abstinent, and I spent a long time on step one and step 12. I was powerless, and I wanted to tell all of you to come to this program and get recovery. And I didn't do anything in the middle. So what happened was I was an abstinent, self-righteous, bitch, arrogant, um, if you pick the words, uh, mean, you know, I was all those things. I was like, you know, uh, judgment, a lot of those, those things. And I was coming to meetings, and I would see people, mostly women at this point in time, getting the things that I wanted in my life, and I had been there before them, and their lives were growing and changing, and mine was staying the same. And I'm like, I'm, I'm looking at them, huh, how come they're getting, you know, the stuff that I want in my life? And one day I went home, um, I talked to my sponsor on Sunday morning, um, every Sunday, just about every Sunday morning, and this was a Saturday meeting, and we were, and it was a step study, and we had read the 10th step, and I was like, all inspired and I was full of talking about the 10th step and how you can say you're sorry and apologize for your behavior and this and that and I was talking to her and there was that silence on the other end of the phone. You know that pregnant pause where you're like, uh oh. <laughs> and she says to me, well, that's great. You can work the 10th step and keep apologizing over and over for the rest of your life or you can work 6 and 7 and change who you are. And it was like I had gotten hit in the head with a spiritual two-by-four. Whoever thought of changing who I was so that I wasn't getting the same results from my behaviors. You know, I could see on people's faces when I interrupted. I can see. I still see it on my husband's face now, but he'll even tell me. And he works with transfer program, so it's good. So I definitely, it's still an issue, but it's not causing wreckage. You know, when I, I don't know about any of you, but I'm not usually willing to change something unless it's causing me wreckage. You know, I've got, like, people who are angry at me, getting fired from jobs, whatever it was, I would have wreckage. And it meant, are you willing to look at yourself? (laughs) What am I willing to do? And, you know, character defects, unfortunately, cannot just get cut out of you and like, oh, I see this and I don't want it anymore and it's gone. What would usually happen is the next ten times, maybe that I would have interrupted, maybe I would do it seven. And the next ten times after that, maybe I would have done it five. So it's a work in progress. It's it's just, until I see a character defect, I can't do anything about it. So until I notice or own that I have it, then I can't make it any different. So it begins with awareness and the willing to listen to the other people in my life and think that they are just picking on me. When you stopped the bulimic behavior, did you start picking I did. And I feel that circle-related question. In abstinence, when you do eat too much, how do you deal with the... How do you deal with it instead? 
I love you for this question, and I'm mean, supposed to repeat it in here. It's like when I um, when I gave up I'm like talking to the phone here. When I gave up uh, bulimia, did I gain weight? The answer being yes. And um, what did I do about it? And uh, when I overeat now, which I do do as recently as last night, um, how do I handle that? Or what are my feelings around that? Um, I did gain weight. Um, and when I didn't like those consequences of that behavior, I began to make, I began to be willing to make different food choices. As a bulimic, it could be like three pans of ravioli and two chocolate cakes. And if I didn't throw it up, I'm okay. But when I didn't like the consequences, meaning I was getting fat, I may, I became willing to make healthier choices in my food. Um, my food today is that I don't eat sugar, flour, or dairy. Um, and, um, and I eat, I own it. And, um, although we travel a lot, and so, um, like if there's like some cheese on a salad or something, I don't pick it all out, you know. So I'm mostly 99% dairy free. Um, I heard a man say many years ago who was abstinent for a very, very long time. Again, kind of what I just if if you are willing to eat, accept the consequences of a food, because we know it, probably all of you can tell me every calorie and every food item like ever, or it's on the package these days. You know, if I'm willing to accept those consequences, then I can eat it. You know, and I was at a party last night, a Mexican Hanukkah party. <laughs> Quite festive, <laughs> and um, and they had Christmas tamales, homemade, like homemade Christmas tamales. And once a year, I eat tamales. Guess what? It was last night, and uh, I didn't know it was going to be last night. I figured it was going to be you know lots of bagel, and it was tamales. And um, and I ate one more entire tamale more than I had planned, um, and. Somebody said to me this morning in the program, well, how do you feel this morning? I said, I'm okay. I made that decision, and I, the food ended. It wasn't like I had one more tamale, and then I was thinking, how can I get another one? And if I take one home, I didn't offer, they offered to take things home. I'm like, no, thank you. It was like, like the big book said, I'm in a place of neutrality, safe and protected. I have not torn off. Unlike drugs and alcohol, which have a black and white, we just have to know when we're, we have to have the willingness to know when we're done. I knew I was done. I was more full than I like to be, but it did taste good, but then I was done. And I was able to say, that tasted good. We get to have things that taste good. I don't know about any of you. All my food tastes good. I don't pick food choices that I don't like to eat, you know? So I, and so when I'm hungry, I'm really hungry. Because I've been abstinent between my meals. So I look forward to my food. And if I'm thinking about dinner tonight, because I'm looking forward to it. I know what I'm going to have. and I, So I, I like my food. And, you know, I, I do on occasion eat too much. But not often. And, you know, and I don't make corrections the next day. Oh, I'm going to have less today. Thank you. You know, it's like, can I live with those consequences today? I'm not going to exercise more. I'm not going to, you know, just get them figured out. Diane. Thank you so much.
Can you talk a bit how you used to go through your day in terms of dealing with people and institutions and how you go through your day now? when you're in stoplights or when you're in a hurry or when the kids aren't doing what they're supposed to. She, yeah, she knows I teach school. Mm-hmm. You mean those 27 little children? Eight years old? They teach me surrender, actually. Um, 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 the question was how I, I go about my day that's differently now than um, in the past. Um, about five years ago, I... Um, began to understand meditation in a different way. And um, uh, because I've been one of those people that was, you know, prayer and meditation, I'm like, oh, I can't get this. I don't know how to do this. I'm not a good meditator, all those things. So I didn't do this. And um, somebody suggested, and I'm a terrible sleeper, and somebody suggested, and I had just gotten an iPad for the first time, I guess it was more than five years ago, um, the person said, well, why don't you put on some meditation podcast? Maybe it'll help you fall asleep. And completely randomly, I picked this thing, and it was really uh, nice and helpful getting me to sleep. And then I discovered that this was a, a mindful meditation that was out of UCLA. I'm like, oh, my God, UCLA. I and that they do it free. You can come and hear it on Thursdays at 1230. And I began to embrace meditation in my life and have since branched out and done a, a lot more. But meditation is what makes the satellites okay. Meditation <laughs> is what makes those 27 eight-year-olds who all have different agendas, when you say sit down and listen please, okay. Meditation has allowed me to not be afraid when my husband's angry at me. Okay? Because he probably has a right to me. He's like, he's angry at me for a good reason usually. <laughs> um, uh, so prayer, so meditation added to my my abstinence and my life today has made a huge difference. I a lot of fear has gone away when people get angry because I get very afraid when people are angry at me, and I have to realize that God is my real employer and it's about surrender and to just listen. Maybe they have something to say. Just listen. All right, I'm supposed to stop because you have elections today. No, no, no is that what? what? You have three minutes. Oh, I have three minutes. Okay. <coughs> um, do you get angry at your husband? And uh, what do you do when you can't I sometimes wonder how two human beings ever could live together without killing each other. You know? <laughs> you know, I lived alone. I was 56 years old when I married for the first time. Okay, I was 50, so which means I had spent a long time as an adult living on my own. And I don't know why when I met him, this is the person that I had spent the, the ten most, 17 most wonderful years of my life with. Um, you know, we are blessed to have the 12 steps as a language in our home. Um, the first tradition talks about our common welfare. So, um, and, and he comes from a very broken um, place in his sobriety. And so when I say, um, gee, the kitty litter needs changing, what he hears is, drop everything now and change the kitty litter or I'm leaving you. <laughs> <laughs> when all I said was, gee, the kitty litter needs changing, which means I could be changing the kitty litter, right? Just needs changing. So he comes from that place of helicopters and PTSD in his relationships. So we learn to place that, to, to work the traditions in our household. So when we fuss, 
they're really short, five or six minutes, and you know, we're very, very blessed to have this. And that's really my only answer because I don't have other experience to compare it to. That's it. So, yeah, we fuss, but not a lot. Have you gone through the uh, mentality? I do believe that this way I eat because that's a thing that blame somebody for your uh, behavior. And if you feel, how, how do you overcome that? Can you repeat the question? Uh, yes, um, it's about, um, thank you, Diane, uh, being um, a victim and um, and do we eat over it? Um, and, um, mm. uh, can I talk to you after the meeting? Okay, thank you. Thank you.